remember I was teething, little gums bleeding. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. Hey guys, welcome to episode 52 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today we're talking with a guest named Chris Cole. He's the author of a memoir of his own personal journey through mental illness and addiction, including body image woes. And the book is called The Body of Chris, A Memoir of Obsession, Addiction, and Madness. He's also a life coach for folks in recovery from any number of eating, mood, and uh, behavioral health issues. And I can't wait to talk to him today, not only because he has a really fascinating story about his own recovery, but also because he's bringing the rare perspective of a man who's recovered from eating issues. And uh, that's you know something that I've really tried to do on the podcast is have a lot of diversity. But in the last two seasons where I've been focusing specifically on eating disorder recovery and health at every size, I feel like the diversity mandate has sort of taken a backseat to the like, has a good story within these themes, man. Mandate. And so I haven't really been able to showcase as much diversity on the podcast as I would like to. So I'm happy to have Chris on to share his perspective as a guy who struggled with these issues. And I'm pledging for 2016 to bring more diversity to the show. So that's going to mean more male guests, more guests of color, more guests of different ages. Because eating and body image issues don't just affect young people or you know people of a particular socioeconomic background or whatever, right? They're pretty universal. It's just that we don't always see people or hear people's perspective from certain marginalized groups. So I am making a real effort to expand the diversity of the guest pool on this podcast. And I'm really happy that Chris is our first guy in quite a while and that he's able to share so eloquently and and movingly um, his story about recovery from body image issues. So we'll hear my talk with him in just a moment. But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for helping improve your relationship with food. The first is my free quiz to assess your relationship with food and see how healthy it is. I'll send you your results via email along with more than a dozen personalized, individualized tips to help you make peace with food wherever you might fall on the spectrum right now. Take the quiz and get your results today at christyharrison.com quiz. That's christyharrison.com quiz. The second resource I want to share is my Intuitive Eating Online course. It's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really demystify and troubleshoot the common areas where people tend to get stuck. I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality, even in its subtle forms, and how to start substituting healthy thoughts instead. I'll share my secrets to making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control, and I'll teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating, and so, so, so much more. Several participants have shared that the course has helped them make peace with their quote off-limits foods already. As one participant put it after trying one of their quote-unquote bad foods, I felt free, sweet, sweet freedom. Why was I so afraid of this food? I doubt I'll feel the need to buy another package when this one's gone, but just knowing it's off the bad list tastes and feels like a huge epiphany. What a moment of power. 
Participants are also having major revelations about how the diet mentality is hanging on in hidden ways. As one participant put it, before doing this module, I really thought I had given up the diet mentality. Now I realize that although I consciously reject dieting, I still have plenty of work to do towards accepting myself as I am. It was great. It really helped me identify what I need to work on by bringing it to my full awareness. And yet another participant shared this beautiful revelation she had in the course. My worth is not my weight or my looks, but my heart, mind, and soul. I need to trade in my self-judgment for self-love and compassion. It feels impossible some days, but I'm going to do my best. I deserve it. If you'd like to join others on this intuitive eating journey and have some beautiful revelations of your own, go to christyharrison.com course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com course. And then finally, if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. And I really appreciate people who've left reviews so far. Just open up iTunes on your computer, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and review sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm so, so grateful for these nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings and help more people find these positive messages. Okay, so without any further ado, let's go talk to Chris. I spoke with him via Skype from his home in Atlanta, Georgia. All right, so tell me about your relationship to food and childhood. Okay, so um, from the earliest I can remember, I had kind of an intense relationship with food. Like it felt like I was magnetized to food. Mm. Like I had, um, you know, my my mom tells a story of uh, me saying something to the effect of, "Why can't I eat all the time?" Mm. You know? So I had this like. I I had this uh even before even before I started developing my memory I had this sort of like touch and go thing with food where I wanted it and was confused why I couldn't have it at certain times or confused why I couldn't have certain foods and things like that. Mm. So I had this sort of I don't really know where that came from if that was because my parents were concerned about me not eating enough food or only eating at certain times or something I'm not really sure. Mhm. Were they really concerned with health in general? Was it like an yes. effort to get you to be healthy? Mm. Yeah. So I have a med- I come from a medical family. My father's a physician mm-hmm. and my mother is a nurse practitioner. And they were all in, bought in on the kind of medical model, fear-based, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not wanting their children to be overweight. And there's a number of people in my family that have had this uh, quote unquote, struggle their whole life. And so mm-hmm. I was really warned about gaining weight at a very young age, way younger than I could comprehend what was going on. And yeah, so I just sort of had this kind of a uh, really weird relationship with food, not like my peers at all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't just sort of something you could have an easy time with, like choose to eat when you're hungry and no, whatever you wanted or whatever. Not at all. And I, I remember watching my friends eat and being so confused how they weren't fat because all I understood was that those foods make you fat, you know, and it made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. What kinds of foods were those? Was it like just Uh, treats or? Yeah, treats. I remember, I remember like, uh. Do, I have this, I have vivid memories of Dunkaroos. Oh yes, you, I love those. Do you remember <laughs> these? I don't even know if they're still around, but um, yeah, I don't know either. 
they were like these little cookie things, these little kangaroo mm-hmm. cookies, and you dip them in. So it was like icing, like frosting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and man, there was like nothing. I couldn't think of anything better mm. than some Dunkaroos. And my friends, I remember my friends wouldn't eat all their Dunkaroos. They would like give me leftover Dunkaroos, and mm. I couldn't even comprehend how that worked. Yeah, like how could you ever leave any Dunkaroos behind? Exactly, exactly. Did you have access to that stuff at home, or was that only with friends? I didn't. It was only with friends. And that mm. I later I developed uh, like substance abuse issues, and I, I look back at some of my food-seeking behavior, mm-hmm. like wanting to go spend the night at friends' houses and getting really uh, excited, even for like multiple days, excited that I was going to go spend the night over at one of my friends' houses because they had like a Costco supply of gushers or something like that. <laughs> right. So it was like excitement more about the food than about the hangout time. Yeah. I mean, I think there was both. I mean, it was mm-hmm. never just it was never just one thing. I mean, I was always really sociable and liked hanging out with my friends, but there was this real added excitement, almost like a thrill of being able to eat these foods that I wasn't supposed to eat. Yeah, definitely. I've heard that from so many kids who grow up in like health conscious families that once they're exposed to those things at another, at a friend's house, it's like all bets are off. They just want them all the time. Right. Yeah. And you know, I have kids of my own now and it's like, I'm trying to walk the balance of like Mm -hmm. what, what to have and what not to have in the house or, you know, when we, like, I try to, like now when, when I talk, my, my son's almost four, mm-hmm. my oldest son, I should say. Ah, yeah. And um, so he's like, he's at a really vulnerable age, I think, as far as like developing his conception of food and, mm-hmm. um, and eating. And so the way I talk about it is I just say that food makes us healthy and strong, you know, and, mm-hmm. And if he want, and he's and he's got a wicked sweet tooth, so maybe there's some genetic component. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and if he had it his way, he would have dessert for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh yeah. So we try to just really talk to him about that. Food makes us healthy and strong, and that these treats, you know, are exactly that. They're treats, but they're mm-hmm. not the sustenance that makes us healthy and strong. You know. Yeah. No, that's a great point is like distinguishing between the sort of nutritious foods and the fun foods and yeah. not giving it any, you know, negative spin, but just kind of making kids aware that it's it's a once in a while or less common thing. And the nutritious foods are more common, more you want more of those. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, and that kind of mirrors my recovery. So mm. it helps me to look at things from a positive standpoint as opposed to a negative standpoint. So yeah. So a positive reinforcement of of having a balanced meal and feeling satiated and eating as close as I can to foods that are going to make me feel good. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, these are pros as opposed to kind of what I developed over my kind of childhood, adolescence, young adulthood was sort of really like negative ideas about food. So it was everything mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to eat, you yeah, know, thinking absolutely. about it in that thinking about it from that standpoint of, of restriction as opposed to, you know, the beautiful abundance that we have of food available to mm-hmm. us to, to nurture our bodies. Totally. Yeah, that's a great point. So like, when did that start for you? Was it around that time with the Gushers and Dunkaroos where you were like, oh, these are bad, but I want them? Definitely. I mean, okay, so I have really, the first vivid memory I have of feeling like I was really being uh, indoctrinated into this kind of like food shaming mm. idea 
was um, I went to this, my pediatrician and my parents were sort of in, in the works and watching me be a little above the norm on the BMI chart. Mm-hmm. And um, this is as a, this is as a kid. And I was, I mean, we're talking really young, like, mm. like kindergarten, you know, wow. and um, I had to go, it was recommended that I go to this hospital program called Shape Up. Mm. And I went and I had this sort of assessment and I think it's really interesting. My So one of the exercises they did is they gave me like a, a, a graph or a piece of paper with different body shapes on it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there was – and you can imagine how this goes. There's three bodies. One is the is what they consider normal body. One is like what they would consider underweight and one is what they would mm. consider overweight. And they asked me which body my, type mine most resembles and I choose – I choose like whichever one looked like fit or whatever. Mm -hmm. And my mom tells the story like, like they recognized that I didn't have a grasp on a realistic view of what my body looked like. They see a problem in that when it's like, well, you know, I'm a little kid. I don't have awareness of, yeah, I don't yet have awareness of that sort of thing as if that's a problem. Right. I mean, and hopefully we've come a long way, but I tell you what, I go to the pediatrician with my son and we, I like to think we have a pretty progressive pediatrician, you know, Mm -hmm. she's in all this natural everything and whatnot. But on the wall, there is the BMI chart. You know, when I was a kid, it was like a gray chart, you know, it was like black Mm -hmm. and white. It was kind of hard to understand unless somebody taught you that whole thing. Like, here's normal, Jew. And, um, but now it's like color coded. Right. It's like red for the higher level. (laughs) Yeah, the, uh. the, the overweight's red and the and the normal weight's green and then mm. the underweight is this like light blue and it like makes me wonder is that not a problem? Right, <laughs> you know? right. And not only that, but it has these it has these computer generated images of the same child, normal weight and overweight. Oh god. And so and so these kids, I mean, I I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, the message to my son is that's what an unhealthy person looks like. Mm-hmm. And the thinner one is what a healthy person looks like. And I think that's really tragic, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, it's such a beautiful thing to not have awareness of how your body's supposed to look, quote unquote, just to be able to be in it and enjoy your life. So, like, Oh, gosh, yeah. I really do feel like, uh, and it's kind of sad, but I, but I feel like I was robbed of the experience of of feeling into my body and coming to my own understanding of what makes me feel good and what it what makes me feel healthy and vibrant. Mm-hmm. Because before I was even having a, any kind of conceptual idea about food and body movement and all this stuff, I was getting the message that I needed to eat this certain thing and I needed to exercise and exercise was something that kept me from getting fat as opposed mm-hmm. to something that was going to, you know, make me feel good. Right. Right. So there was so much fear from the get-go. Oh, yeah. And I, and well, not only that, but I just, I hated to exercise, you know, like mm-hmm. I went to this, I went to this shape up thing and, or maybe it was called shape down. Oh God, even worse. <laughs> it was either shape up or shape down. I think it was shape down. Oh no. Ugh. Anyways, so uh, yeah, I think it was. I think it was. Shaped out. So, uh, wow. but but they had us. They put us in the classroom, 
and uh, they had all these aerobic steps, the stepper things, and we had oh, to. Oh yeah, we had to watch an aerobics video and copy the moves. Oh As a God. little kid. Oh. It was like torture. Yeah, that's so boring. Yes. Oh. So now we're a little more keen on uh, like play. I think that's really beneficial. If only we could get make some of that progress with uh, food and eating. Yeah, I know. I know. It seems like, you know, this medical model, it's like that was already around when you were a kid, but it's just become more entrenched, I think, as the years have gone by in some way. Like it's, you know, now it's part of public health policy at the national level. So like Let's Move has kind of infiltrated and this, you know, various cities have anti-childhood obesity campaigns that are really about shame and not about like teaching kids nice, good relationships to their bodies. Absolutely. I mean, it's terrible, but this, you know, and that's how I was. Every food decision was based on like fear and shame. Mm. You know, and and then this sort of thrill of breaking the rules, you know, I kind of have have a little rebel in me. I don't know which came first, the The rules or the the rebel rebellion, but yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. When did you sort of really realize that that was happening or were you aware of it as like, I'm being good when I eat these things and I'm being bad when I do this or was it just sort of organic like you know, going back to that kind of like medical training. So, mm-hmm. so I remember having like a class and we're talking about, and we're looking at the food pyramid and, you know, all the bad foods are on the top and mm-hmm. the good foods are on the bottom. And so I, yeah, I really had this dichotomous view of food from a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it just sort of went from there, you know, like foods like healthy choice and, Oh yeah, stuff like that. Where where diet they were, foods? The lot, yeah, lots of diet foods were going on in my house, and and you know the more the more I had those kinds of foods, the more I wanted the real food, and it just like all the efforts to try to get me to lose weight or something as a kid, just mm-hmm. every single time rebounded. Yeah, and I wonder what would the trajectory have been if there wasn't such this really like rigid tightness around food and exercise, you know, and totally. I just don't know. I mean, I look at pictures of myself, kindergarten, first grade. I mean, when it was already getting established that I had issues, doesn't look like a kid that's having problems to me, you know, mm. it looks like maybe just a, a little heavier kid, but that's it. Right. So there was all this like irrationality around what was maybe just your normal body type being a little bit bigger than some of the other kids. Sure, sure. And yeah, I mean, you said in the book too, like there you were shopping in the husky section. It's like the husky section exists for a reason. That's a body type that, you know, is out there in the world among kids. It's not, right. you know, it doesn't have to be a shameful thing, although it sounds like for you it kind of was that label. It felt shameful. And I don't know if that's the way it was talked about or mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. When I was in college and I took an intro to psychology classes, I remember the women in the class talking about petite, uh-huh. petite sizes. And they were, ta- they were going off about these petite sizes. And I remember thinking, I even raised my hand and was like, have y'all ever heard about husky sizes for boys? <laughs> and none of them <laughs> have ever heard of, heard of that. Oh, wow. But uh, I, fe- I felt all the same things that some of these women were talking about around, you know, whether or not they could fit in the petite sizes and mm-hmm. stuff. 
Right. So there was something about labeling your size as compared to other people's sizes was very triggering. It was, you know, it really was. Yeah. Looking back now, when do you recognize that like disordered behaviors around really took root? I mean, it sounds like you already had a kind of a negative adversarial relationship to food, but were you restricting or doing any other like unhealthy behavior at that point? Yeah. So for me, at my childhood, I remember food being kind of like a, a chore that would be rewarded by a treat every once in a while. Mm. And that mentality just like kept growing in its problem where, where I just put a lot of emphasis on the times where I didn't have to eat quote unquote healthy. Mm -hmm. Oh, and so healthy felt like restriction. Part of that was because every time I watched my other friends eat, they were eating foods I wasn't allowed to have Mm. or wasn't supposed to have. Like it's hard for my parents because, you know, they love me so much and they, they would never have wished any of this on me. And Mm -hmm. if they could do it over again, I'm sure they would have, they would have been a lot more cautious about the language they use and stuff. Yeah. But you know, like my mom's very specific to say that she never was like forbidding about food. She just was, she would just encourage me. But, but for me being a real sensitive boy and very perceptive, the encouragement felt just the same as if she were to say, you can't have this. Yeah. So you picked up on her maybe fear about certain foods or her desire to like restrict you to certain foods, even if she was saying, well, you have a choice, but I'm encouraging you to eat that. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you really want that? Right. It's like, you know? yeah, of course, if someone's asking a question like that. <laughs> well, like, huh, now I don't know. Guess I'm not supposed to. Yeah. That kind of a uh, basic mistrust of self starts to, yeah. you know, where, where it's like, gosh, well, I don't know. Am I hungry? Uh, right. Is this food I really want? Like, you know, that kind of confusion started setting in and it's taken a long time to, to learn to be able to trust my decisions without constantly going back and second guessing. No, that makes so much sense because it was reinforced at such a young age, like your intuition or your body might be telling you something, but second guess it because, you know, it might be dangerous to do what it says. Right, exactly. And I wonder about, I wonder about the nutritional implications of all that diet food back Mm -hmm. in like the 80s. Like, was I getting proper nutrition? It's hard for me to say. I don't really know. Right. But I could have easily been nutritionally deprived and then feeling, feeling a lot of that sort of hunger cues and and being confused about it. Yeah. That physical deprivation. I mean, that would make sense, you know, given that like a lot of the eighties diet food was really low fat because that was the craze back then. And oh my gosh, like, yeah, no fat, no fat. Yeah. And then the kind of food seeking behavior really started. So you Mm -hmm. talk about when did I notice it was disordered? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really think much of it at the time because by the time I was like in middle school, I had already taken on this sort of identity as the fat kid, Mm -hmm. you know, in my mind. I was like the funny, jolly fat kid. Mm -hmm. And how much of me was actually the funny, jolly kid or needed to be that, I don't really know. To be honest, I still wonder about that today. (laughs) (laughs) That the funny jolliness kind of... But anyways... I remember we would have, we would sit in these round circles and there was multiple round circular tables Mm -hmm. and they were like, you know, rows of circular tables and maybe like eight people could fit at a table. Mm -hmm. And I remember whenever our friends would be finished with their food, 
they would throw it in the middle and the first person to grab it would be able to get it. So it was just kind oh, of Oh no. It's almost like a food game that we did. Uh-huh. And uh I remember just uh trying to like self-denigrate and make fun of myself for being like funny and fat and all this kind of stuff. But man, I was snatching up that food right mm-hmm. when it got tossed in the middle and and it had stuff like real mayonnaise and I mean, I remember one of my friends he had every day his sandwich had had like Italian oil and all this stuff mm. and mayonnaise and herbs and cheese and, and whatnot. Um. And, and I would just think, I would just think, what is going on here? You know, like, right. Like he, he should be so fat if he's eating yeah. this every day. Why is he not fat? So confusing. And meanwhile, I'm eating like I'm eating pretzels and carrot sticks and, mm. and fat free ranch dressing and you know, who knows? Who knows? Right. Yeah. Which probably isn't very satisfying. And it sounds like there might have actually been some real physiological deprivation that weren't getting like enough protein or enough fat in your diet. Yeah, probably. You're just hungry all the time for for good reason. (laughs) I think that's a legitimate concern for that time period. I do think we're kind of growing out of that, but I know, thank God. But that was a, that was huge at the time. I mean, everything yeah. was free. Everything, I know. That was what's considered healthy, and it was going to make you instantly get fat if you ate fat. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so you noticed that, you know, you were kind of the guy who would finish everybody's food at that point. Yeah, exactly. And it became kind of like a little, my little shtick, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, that was just part of, part of me. And then, and then what happened was... That was okay, and I was always a real popular kid, and my little, uh, you know, song and dance about about being funny and fat was, like, really worked for me. But then what happened was, right around kind of, like, end of elementary school, beginning of middle school, I was really aware of girls and, <laughs> and dating, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was very attracted to girls, and, like, even from a young age, I liked I just really liked the girls. And that started really influencing. That was kind of where where I couldn't really laugh it off as much because I would watch these girls that I really liked, you know, always default prefer the thin, athletic, you know, uh, body type. I mean, this was stuff I was noticing. And I just felt like there is no way I was ever going to be able to attract someone and, and continue to be fat, you know. Right. And that's when I think, you know, the sexuality piece was when I really shifted and I went from rejecting the invitation to diet from medical professionals and my family and stuff to actively seeking how to lose weight. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that's so interesting. Puberty is such a tough time for a lot of people. It changes like how you relate to your body with regard to sexuality. Yeah, if, if you're seeing all the girls that you like going for thinner guys, it's like maybe that's how I'm supposed to be. Yeah, and I and I got a fair amount of like bullying started getting a lot more cruel around that age. Mm. Like, I mean, I, I always like kind of got teased, but it was almost I almost felt like as long as I was playing along, it was no big deal. And, right, uh, you sort of made that your persona and it was okay. Yeah, but it got to the point where you know, because I, I also think boys, as they're coming into their adolescence, they get they get really competitive and mm-hmm. stuff, and a lot of that is physical, you know. And right. so, and so, I started getting picked on about my weight and whatnot. But but it it just you know the intelligence is getting up, and so the cruelty <laughs> the cruelty <laughs> naturally follow. Right, right. And, uh, 
And, and the I, testosterone too, I bet. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember this one kid in specific, like he said, so I used to slouch my shoulders forward as a kid mm-hmm. um, because I was so embarrassed of my chest and my stomach and all that. Oh yeah. So I sort of had this feeling like if I if I made myself small, like I could somehow make myself small by like shrinking my frame or something. Right. And some of it was subconscious, but I remember, I remember like looking at myself in the mirror and depending on how I put my shoulders would tell me like how much of my body showed, you know, that's Mm -hmm. just kind of how I was thinking about it. And I remember this one kid saying, making this grand announcement to like a big group of us during like in between one of our classes that Chris doesn't look that fat from the front, but from the back, he doubles in size. Oh no. It was like just cut me to the core. Yeah. You know, like, because not only was it cruel, but it was like, it sort of confirmed that everyone was judging me the same way I was judging myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, ugh, one kid who is hypercritical can seem to speak for everyone. Exactly. Ugh, that sucks. Yeah. So just stuff like that would happen. I mean, I can put my violin away in a few minutes. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but, it's know, these I, are formative years for people, and um, right. So I start trying to diet. I get a personal trainer, and my parents were always very. My parents were always encouraging me to get a personal trainer and stuff, mm. but but then I like wanted one, and he put me on uh, ephedrine before it was banned. I was only oh like God. fourteen or fifteen or something, and I remember telling my buddy man, this stuff is amazing. It's like I eat a salad and I'm full. Mm. And I, for a year, I would say nearly a decade, I took ephedrine-like substances. So like I took ephedrine until it was banned, but then they came out with all these, you know, the same companies that made, that sold the ephedrine products came out with similar products and didn't really skip a beat. And so I just switched to those supplements. They seemed to work just as well, or at least as far as I could tell. Mm-hmm. And I started, uh, I got really big in the Atkins diet. My parents did the Atkins diet as well. My dad was real big on the Atkins diet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so. Were your parents you know, ever bigger or did they, were they like thin they were, people who always wanted to be thinner? They were bigger, uh, when I was like a real t- small kid. Uh-huh. And then they like died. I think they did like sugar busters together. That was like their first dieting experience as adults. Ah, uh, okay. I think it was called Sugar Busters, but whatever. You know, they, they cut out sugar or something, right, right, like that. And um, and anyway, so they lost the weight, and but they always, you know, I sort of feel like once you go on a diet, it mm-hmm. just sort of taints everything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, it like opens the floodgates for exactly, all sorts of other bad. Exactly. You know. So like from that point on, I mean, I you know, I don't remember a time where my parents weren't pretty pretty well steeped in the latest diet. Yeah, so you kind of joined them then in high school. Exactly. So I joined them in high school, and the amount of attention that I got for being thin was just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Like I just, it, it really messed me up. I mean, I mean, I, I even think about like, you know, I was considered thin or in shape or whatever like people would call it mm-hmm. for maybe. I mean, we're talking maybe two years. Mm-hmm. And that became what I was supposed to be for all the years after and how I couldn't ever get back there. 
And I desperately wanted to and desperately tried all the next diets and fads and everything. Yeah, it's like this myth that like anyone who's fat has like a thin person lurking inside them. That's who they're really supposed to be. Oh, my God. (laughs) Instead of like, here's who you are and here's how you've, you know, starved yourself to look like, but not going to last. It's terrible. And, and, you know, I, and I, the whole bingey type of behavior got really intense during that time because I actually like in the, in the intense carb restrictive diets, pretty much every single one of them had cheats in place. So like, oh, you, could, yeah. you could cheat one day or cheat, you know, I, I was told to cheat one hour once a week and, God. and during that hour I could eat whatever I wanted. And it was like, it's a huge sell from, from my nutritionist. And so I was basically taught to binge, right. you know, I mean, not only that it was acceptable, but that it was somehow good for me that like that physio somehow physiologically, like I would max out and like, mm. it was so crazy, you know? And, yeah. and so what happened is that hour turned into a day, mm-hmm. turned into a weekend, you know, and the distance between what was healthy and unhealthy, uh, in my mind grew. Mm. So during the week, I would be incredibly restrictive, incredibly neurotic about my food and exercise. And then during the weekend, it was like balls to the wall, crazy town, you know, Mm -hmm. be drunk and binge eating and, you know, just you name it, I was doing it. Right. So all that deprivation from the week really caught up with you. And you had like this sanctioned way of dealing with it. It was like not only was that kind of what you wanted to do anyway, maybe to rebel against the deprivation, but people were telling you like this is medically appropriate or at least, you know, the the one hour supposedly was. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm distorting it however I want to do mm-hmm. it. But the fact remains that teaching someone to binge, I mean, that's <laughs> that's not a good thing. No. Not at all. And that's, I don't know what science or non-science that was based on, but it's totally not true. Like there's no reason to do that. That's really unfortunate. So you started like really just yo-yoing between restriction. And- I eventually, so so basically my week would look like this real, I would feel, by, by the time Sunday rolled around after my weekend, mm-hmm. I was like hating myself, you know? yeah. And Monday, there was like this promise of newness and that I could be better and that I would get better and that I would do better next time and all this kind of stuff. And then come Friday, I was I was so deprived, you know, emotionally mm-hmm. and nutritionally that uh, it w- I would do it all over again. Yeah. And that's how I lived my life. I mean, for years, you know, and it got it got way worse in college. And I, I had um. So my book's titled The Body of Chris, which is like a playoff of my psych- psychotic episode. Mm-hmm. And so I had a I had an acute manic episode right before my freshman semester at the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And it was it was totally nuts, you know. Like I I got arrested in my dorm room lobby, taken to jail. I thought that the police officers were the Pharisees and were going to take me to my crucifixion. Oh my god! I mean, it was just nuts. But you know. When I look back on my development, you know, there's probably nothing more bipolar than the restriction binge cycle. Right. You know, I mean, that is just, it's this constant up and down, constant mood swing mm. from, and it touches everything. So yeah. it's a nutritional deficiency. 
to a nutritional overload. It's a, it's a mood high and a mood low. It's a sense of self mm-hmm. that goes up and goes down. It's pride. It's shame. I mean, it's, it's the whole nine. And, um, but you didn't know you were bipolar at that time. You just, I didn't, yeah. you know, and I think that it was triggered, you know, I mean, you know, bipolar is such a complex thing. So it's impossible for me to say right. whether or not that would have been my, my fate had I not sort of been abusing my body so much. Right. It's hard to say. Yeah. Cause but, there's like the, the genetic component and then the environmental factors exactly. trigger it. Right. And, um, and I, th- I mean, I think I was maxed out by that point and mm. not only that, but my psychosis really involved a lot of body shame. Mm. You know? So like, um, I got naked, which I was totally ashamed of being naked. You know, these were things, and I remember feeling like it was like, I wasn't for the first time in my life, I wasn't ashamed of my body. Wow. And it's really, this really powerful, almost spiritual experience to not be carrying that shame, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's quite a comorbid thing. So I yeah. got the bipolar, the, the uh, recovery from substances, and then the eating disorder recovery. And they're so intertwined. It'd be, it's impossible for me to tease them out and say, mm. here's where one started and here's where it ends and here's where here's where this happened or that happened because because even in my most extreme acute mania these themes of of body image and body dysmorphia were coming out you know and not only that but then the substance use so like i'm staying up for days on end drinking red bull and vodka mm. and uh trying not to eat jeez <laughs> yeah yeah so that's how the mania manifested oh yeah and so did you, like, when that first manic episode happened and you got arrested and stuff, did you at that point get help and get diagnosed or did it take a while after that? So I got diagnosed basically basically because I took an antidepressant. So I got, I got terribly depressed. Mm-hmm. And then I took an antidepressant and it sent me into mania. And that was, like, enough for the doctors to say that, well, a normal person, if they get, are given an antidepressant, won't go manic. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's only a capability of somebody that's bipolar. Wow. Yeah. And um, so that's how I found out. And, you know, I was still skeptical. I was still – actually, I was still incredibly skeptical because I knew that I was abusing my body so much that it wasn't out of the realm of possibility to have a psychotic break. Oh, yeah. But then I was like, well – a medication sent me into mania. So does that mean like, is it really legit? You know, maybe I'm just right. having an adverse reaction to medication. Like there's nothing natural about taking that and inducing that mania. So, so I had a really, but it's typical for people that live with bipolar disorder to struggle with acceptance. And, mm-hmm. and it, and the reason is, is because it touches everything, you know? Yeah. And so, like for me, if I'm, if I'm feeling a little hypomanic or something, I know myself that I am going to turn that into an opportunity to try to restrict. Mm. If I if I'm not if I'm not mindful about that, that that's what will happen because yeah because that elevated mood for whatever reason interacts with my body to make me kind of like not be in touch with my hunger. Mm-hmm. And then the depression is the total opposite. So if I'm feeling uh, a little depressed, I'll start trending towards not binging, but I'll start my my appetite will get a lot more. I'll be just be a lot mm. more, and I'll notice that I'll that I'll want more food after I'm finished with my meal or something like that. 
uh, a lot more than I would normally. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it's really, it's really tough. And that's, that has made intuitive eating really a hard concept for me to grasp. When I first learned about intuitive eating, I mean, I went to a counselor, intuitive eating counselor, mm-hmm. and I would get out of the meeting. This is how, this is how distorted I was. So I was <laughs> out of the meeting. I would hit a drive through and get like a value meal, like fries and uh, cheeseburger, baconator or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I would tell myself, this is my intuition. So this is my intuition uh, for, you know? Right, right. And, um, I just, I just had no concept because my eating was always just really pulled in, super reined in, really mm-hmm. restrictive. Or just this total like feast. I couldn't find it. I couldn't trust it, and I didn't even know, I didn't even know it was possible to find some sort of middle ground. Yeah, yeah, and I, that's like something that's so common with eating disorders and like people who've had wild swings like that their whole life. Like, what is your intuition even saying? What? How do you even know what it's hungry for? Because you know it could be just your eating disorder talking to you, or just that voice in your head that wants you to eat more than you're comfortable with or less than need or whatever. Absolutely. You know, and, well, and all, not only that, but because I'm so sensitive, like I have, mm. I have such a sensitive nervous system. And because of that, I have a very exaggerated response to what I eat. So mm-hmm. I'll eat something and I, I mean, it will, I, I can eat something that doesn't feel good to my body and it will like ruin my day, mm. you know? And, and it's been hard for me to tease out like what is that is is any of that like emotional like shame right. or or something but but no it is leg- it is legitimately like wrecks my system mm. you know and, and that's been a challenge in and of itself as well totally yeah so how have you managed that through the process of recovery so for me the biggest number one thing is i just had to separate health from weight loss mhm and that was a really tough – those are two concepts that were incredibly difficult to tease out. And yeah. I, still, I still have to remind myself and still work with that and still have to stay mindful for how, how I'm thinking about food and, mm-hmm. um, and exercise and all that. And a lot of bipolar research is really – is very pro like balanced nutrition and, mm. and consistent exercise and – consistent sleeping patterns and all Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. And so for me, I just can't, I, it's impossible for me to eat, to try to lose weight. That's never a healthy move for me. Mm -hmm. And so, and the second I do it, I'm rebounding. I mean, I'm talking the second I think, um, I really need to lose weight or, oh, I'm so fat or something. The second that happens, I'm planning my I'm planning some sort of unhealthy eating behavior. Mm-hmm. It's just it, they just go they just go hand in hand. Yeah, I'm not actually deprived in a moment of a decision to like diet, mm-hmm. but my mind is telling me that I'm deprived. You know, yeah. it's it's frightened of that possibility. And you've so, gone through that so much in your life that like you've carved those neural pathways of fear around. Oh my gosh, absolutely, and so. And so for me, I just tr- I just try to focus on what I'm adding mm-hmm. to my eating plan. You know, like I'm I'm adding fruits and vegetables, or I'm I'm creating food that tastes good. I mean, yeah. these are these are things that I that I need to do for myself 
to not only stay healthy, but to keep me out of a diet mentality. Totally. And, you know, carbs used to terrify me. I mean, I'm, like I said, you know, I was an Atkins fanatic. And even after Atkins, it was, it was uh, South Beach and then it's paleo. I mean, it's just never ending. Yeah, it has all these different. And so now like, like a food I love now is banana. Mm-hmm. And banana was like the worst thing <laughs> right. I could have possibly eaten yeah. in, my, in my disorder. You know, I was like, I was just, I was just nuts about it. Or like grains. Mm-hmm. I love whole grains. Like I love them and I could never have them. It was right. like, it was a bad food, you know? Totally. And so I make like delicious smoothies and like, you know, like this morning I had, um, had a uh, banana and almond butter sandwich. Yum. And it's like, to me, tastes like dessert. Mm-hmm. It's like exactly what I want. It's, yeah. like, it's like awesome. And so like really coming into that understanding that I can have foods that I want that are also healthy for me. Mm-hmm. But that that doesn't need to be about weight. Right. Because the second I start making about weight, it's like, oh, well, I need to cut the banana or maybe I shouldn't have the bread with my sandwich. Maybe it shouldn't be a sandwich. I should just put the almond butter straight on the banana or, you know, that stuff. And it just starts creeping in that direction. Yeah, it's so hard to disentangle. I mean, it's like from your own history and then also from all the cultural messages we get every single day. It's Food and weight are so, are thought to be so intertwined in the public imagination. And really they're not. And there's all this research now in the health at every size field that like shows they're not, but the public hasn't gotten the memo. Yeah. <laughs> and and having gone through that for such a long time, I'm sure it's it's really hard to not fall back into that thinking. Oh, it's so tough. One, it's like what's healthier? Having whole grains, fruits and vegetables, legumes, just mm-hmm. like it's like really just yummy whole foods having that kind of base foundation or having a base foundation of like steak, bacon. I mean, like that's, right. that's that was how I lived, you know? Yeah. I lived to eat meat and anything else was just like an afterthought, mm-hmm. you know? and um, Or was a bad food. Or, was, or even was a bad food, exactly. And so now I love carbs and I love grains and potatoes and mm-hmm. fruit. I mean, this stuff that like, it's it's just it's just wild to think about how how bad I thought those foods were. I know. I feel the same way. I like I used to be so phobic about carbs. I was I think my disorder came on around the time that Atkins got really big, so I also had this like low carb element to it and it it took so long to get comfortable with even though I, you know, once I had given up the diet and then given up the disorder and you know, was practicing recovery, I was still like uh, do I want this noodle dish for lunch or should I have a salad? And I would, you know, really fight with myself about it and feel guilty for ordering the thing I really wanted, you know, but it's now it feels so liberating to just be like, oh, I'm going to have this noodle dish. It's amazing. And not have it be a stigma. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's totally wild. And, and, you know, I, something I also have to battle is like, like I'm a big guy, you know, mm-hmm. I just am. I mean, I think that's how I'm made. I think because I, I did so much like yo-yo dieting and stuff that I, I just have a, such a low tolerance for weight loss type mm-hmm. jargon or behaviors and whatnot. Yeah. But like I'm healthy. I, I'm, I'm a healthy person and 
Yeah. I even sometimes will find myself like feeling a little shy about being healthy and being big. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, I'll have friends that are that are like smaller than me and they're ordering food that like I don't really care for. That's mm-hmm. not going to make me feel good. And they're like shocked that I don't want that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I have this sort of like subtle voice that's like, that's like, well, they wouldn't be shocked if you were like super thin. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's really sneaky the way it kind of. Oh, it's so sneaky. It comes such into a, your self image. Oh. Oh, it's terrible. And, you know, health at every size was like really taught me, taught me to be able to do that, mm-hmm. to, te- to tease it out, you know? That's amazing. So how did you discover health at every size? Oh, gosh. Probably on just searching the internet and <laughs> stuff, you know? I mean, I read intuitive eating and really like I had to read it a second time because the first time it just was like foreign language to right. me. So I read it a number of years later and just like totally was into it. And mm-hmm. and then I just start, sort of I think I just came across it like reading articles about it. I mm-hmm. think I just is sort of that cross pollination where can run into a lot of other things if you're searching for one thing on the mm-hmm. internet. Totally. That's awesome. So what, how was it for you when you first discovered it? Were you like immediately drawn to it? At first it was foreign and I felt like I felt like I had to let go mm-hmm. of such a deeply held ingrained belief that that my size equaled my level of health. Yeah. You know. So deep. And, and even now, I mean, because not because I have my own recovery obviously. Mhm. But the culture is constantly bombarding us with messages to the contrary. Yep. And so like not only do we have to recover, but we also have to continue to stay strong in the face of this constant like practically propaganda. You yes. Know? Oh, so well said. It really is. It's It's propaganda for the diet industry. It's propaganda for like – self-destructive weight loss practices and, you know, really any weight loss practice, I would argue, is self-destructive in the sense that if you're a certain size and you're not accepting yourself, you're it's like you're destroying yourself at some fundamental level by trying to shoehorn yourself into something that society says is acceptable. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, well, you know, and it's and it's everywhere. It's even in our, you know, like you go to the doctor and you and yep. you want to trust you want to trust your doctor. Yeah. You want to feel like that's a safe place that you're getting correct information. Mm-hmm. And I go, so I'll go to my doctor and he'll tell me he'll tell me in his in his best most compassionate way. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris, you're a father now. You got to really start thinking about this stuff like I think by the next time I see you, you're going to need, I'm going to need you to lose 20 pounds. And he said, and then he'll say, and then he'll say, it's all carbs. It's Uh. all, just cut the carbs. It's all carbs. And meanwhile, my blood work is perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, I have, I have this beautiful, healthy routine in my life. Yeah. How could that be the the thing that he needs to threaten me with? That really cuts to the core, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, of course, I care about my kids and I want to be around, to, you know, I want to be around to see their grandchildren, stuff like that. I mm-hmm. mean, and to be told that in order to do that, I need to, like, engage in disordered eating behavior. I mean, it's terrible. And, and, and to come from such a place of established authority. I know. That's the part that's so hard to swallow. Like, 
it's medical doctors who are people's first line of connection to the medicals. And sometimes they're only, you know, that's the only place that a lot of people get health advice is from their doctor. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's, t- it's so tough, you know, and they're susceptible to the fad diets, too. So they're just totally. following all the they're just following the media and fads because they're not mm-hmm. training stuff. I know. Exactly. And so much of the medical research is influenced by researchers' bias. You know, there's such an ingrained fat bias in society that like if, you know, there's the the thing called the obesity paradox, which is just like, well, we don't understand why these fat people can be so healthy. So we'll call it a paradox. Like, (laughs) it's like, no, actually, what if this research means that you can be fat and fit and healthy? Like, what what about that? But no, that can't be a an interpretation of it in most mainstream uh, research. It's just not something that's found. Oh my gosh! Exactly. <laughs> you know, and for yeah. me, and and so like my attitude for that is that I have to eat what's right for me, what makes me feel healthy, and the weight will do what it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just how I have to look at it. You know, there's times where it's hard where I think. Gosh, I really want to lose like pounds. Mm. I will do that because it's like I come across something, like I have a conversation with my doctor and they're telling me that. Mm-hmm. And then for the next like week, I'm thinking things like that. And I have to, I have to just like gear up and be like, yeah. no, that's not the truth. No, exactly. No. It's not the truth. And you know so clearly firsthand what that did to you. And, you know, there's so much research of like what it does like. But it's it's so hard when you've recovered and done so much work to get past these behaviors, to have like constant messaging from various sources being like, have you tried this disordered thing? Have you tried that disordered thing? You need to change your body. Your body's broken. Like, ah, uh, no. <laughs> right. Oh, it drives so me crazy. Hard. And I mean, so my biggest thing, like, so as a coach, I'm trying to get people to engage in their lives so that they're more connected to something than the distraction of weight, mm-hmm. you know, like if, if that's somebody's issue to me, it's a distraction. It's like, it's something for me to focus on that is distracting me from what I could be doing, what, how I could be connecting with people in my lives, mm-hmm. how I could be learning and growing and becoming more engaged. And I mean, these things that are like the wellsprings of our lives get lost when all we're doing is focusing on the scale. You know? Yes. That's so fantastic. So yeah, tell me a little more about your coaching. Yeah. So um, I have all these, all these mini issues, right? <laughs> so I got into my first uh, sort of like clinical role was as a wilderness guide in a mm. wilderness therapy. And I lo- absolutely loved it. It was something I went through myself and I went back to work there mm. and fell in love with it. You know, had to get into the field. And then I was a, then I was a mentor at Transitional Living House. It's really popular mm-hmm. called Main House. And then I went to work in another men's program where I was a life skills coach. And I just sort of like got, mm-hmm. got in this role sort of naturally through all these programs. And then I just thought, you know, this could be used privately. Like, because I saw, I saw a real challenge for people when they go to, when they go in treatment and they get out, it's like they're going from these long days and even like in a contained environment Mm -hmm. to out on their own, maybe seeing a therapist like once a week, something like that. Right. Trying to go to meetings maybe, or depending on what their orientation is. And I just wanted to be somebody that's kind of like 
been there, done that, a professional that they could rely on and somebody that could help them achieve goals where they're engaged in their life. They have a life that they want to live, not a life that they want to escape from. Oh, that's amazing. That's so powerful to be able to offer your experience and that, you know, experience working with other people. Oh, it's huge, you know? Yeah. For me, I was in, I remember being, you know, in therapist's office and psychologists and psychiatrists, and it didn't matter how much they told me that people recovered or it didn't Mm. matter. It didn't really matter because it was never real until I met people that did. I think everyone needs to have like a mentor that has, you know, has that kind of been there, done that, you know, resume. Because we need to know that we're not alone. We need to relate. I mean, it's huge. Absolutely. I so agree. I think I've heard so many stories from people recovering from eating disorders who are, you'll never recover. You'll just be managing this for the rest of your life, you know, because that was the old thinking about these things. And then they met someone who was recovered fully and, you know, offered that hope that actually can have a life beyond just managing this chronic condition. And that changed the whole trajectory of recovery. It's like absolutely incredible. It's like that, the whole mile thing, like the four minute mile, like nobody could do it. And then (laughs) one guy does it and then everybody can do it, you know? Totally. I know. That's really interesting. It's like... Psychology of it's crazy. Just needed to be told it was possible. Yep. Well, it's been so great talking with you, Chris. We're just about out of time, but can you tell us where people can find you? Yeah, definitely. So the easiest place is just thebodyofchris.com. It's the title of my book. The Body of Chris is the title of my book. And then thebodyofchris.com's got like all the social media and it's got a link to my coaching site. Yeah, that's the easiest place. Would love to connect. Awesome. Yes. And the book is amazing. I definitely want to recommend that to everybody. So thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Great talking with you. You too. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. And then I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison, and the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work.